Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. This is episode 69. Nice. Nice. Pope Boniface IV. Two bony faces in a row. What's that about? Just uh, the way the cookie crumbles, or the way the Vatican conclave votes, even though it's not quite that yet, but you know. He picked his name, right? Or is that his real name? This is his real name. We got so many bony faces wandering around the Vatican. We do, yes, because we're not quite at the time where most of them will pick a papal name. Every now and then we get one who changes his name. But yes, this bony face was born Bonifacio, so you know, he was born with that name. Jumping right into it then, he was born in Valeria, in what is now the modern-day province of L'Aquila, in the smack-dab center of Italy. His father's name was John, and he was a physician. And some sources suggest that his family was of Marcian heritage, which is a nod back to an ancient Italian tribal peoples called the Marci, who occupied the area before even the Roman Republic. There are mentions of the Marcy people all the way back to the late 4th century BC. So if that's true, and Boniface's family could claim Marcy origin, then they have been in the same place for a very, very long time. Beyond that, not a whole lot is known about Boniface's early life before he entered the church, but he may have spent time as a monk following the order of St. Benedict at the St. Sebastian Abbey in Rome. Which would make sense, because what we can actually verify about Boniface is that he definitely had a connection with our previous Pope Gregory, and very likely was a student of his in some kind of sort of way. So when Gregory was made Pope, it seems that Boniface followed him into the structure of the church, serving first as a deacon, and then made into a cardinal deacon by Gregory on May 10th of 591. So he is one of these monks that Boniface would have put into the clerical positions that Sabinian then tried to undo. Don't forget about Sabinian. Yeah, we cannot forget about Sabinian, or all of the other names you called him. Sebaceous. Sibaris. And in this capacity, Boniface becomes the first cleric to be recorded as holding the office of dispensator, which is a role dedicated to administrating, organizing, and distributing the patrimonies, which are those endowments and donations that have been given to the church. This is all very Gregorian, as we see. And we know that Gregory was a master at securing donations of wealth and property to the church, so we know that in this capacity, Boniface would have been so busy the whole time. But apparently, Boniface was doing a great job in this role and made quite an impression on his fellow clerics, who describe him as pious and industrious and a devoted champion of the poor. So, clearly, he and Gregory are cut from the same cloth, and together they were ensuring that wealth was getting disseminated where it was most needed. So he was like a, I don't know, inventory 
books sort of guy. Yeah, he would get all of the inventory of everything that had been donated to the church and all of the lands that were donated to the church. He would take stock of it and then decide who to send it to, who to give it to, or how to distribute the value of what was coming out of it. He basically did all the legwork for Gregory's big ideas. He sure did. This reputation he gained as being very good at his job and being a champion for the poor was definitely a factor in his election after the death of Pope Boniface III. He was elected easily by the Roman clergy, but because they were still waiting for imperial confirmation before they could consecrate, there was another nine-month gap between the election and the consecration. God, this is just getting inconvenient. And it's going to go on for so long. <laughs> I'm writing about a pope right now, and I, I know that I mentioned several times in writing my notes for that pope for the future that I'm still saying, this is going to go on for so long. <laughs> so, uh, It's the new Easter. It is the new Easter. So they're waiting and they're waiting, and he finally gets consecrated on September 15th of 608. And so when he becomes pope, it should be no shock to anyone that Boniface modeled his papacy after his former mentor, Pope Gregory. Yeah, loves that guy. Love doing all that work. Yeah. And he's going to continue to do it because he is a major supporter of clerical reform to bring the church more in line with the ideals of the monastery. And he kept his papal household up to the rigor of the Order of St. Benedict. You know, he's like... Going back to that whole ascetic living thing, even for the Pope, he supported monks and he continued to found monasteries wherever appropriate. And he used these monks as a network to provide relief to the poor. So he's basically trying to undo what Sabinian did and try to carry on with a little bit more of the Boniface Third spirit here. Mm hmm. And Boniface was able to make one major contribution that would have a profound and significant change to the landscape of Rome itself. And this is because in 609, Boniface received permission from the Emperor Focus to convert the Pantheon from a pagan temple into a Catholic church. Oh, really? The Pantheon. The Pantheon. Are you familiar with the Pantheon? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the Pantheon, because this is super exciting. I mean, it's it's one of those buildings in Rome that everyone has definitely heard of or seen, but the significance of it is, is quite large, and its history is quite far-flung. So I am going to give you a little summary of that. So the Pantheon as the name suggests, was originally built as a temple of all the gods during the reign of Augustus by his military general Marcus Agrippa around 31 BC. It was then rebuilt after the original was destroyed, this time by Emperor Hadrian around 126 AD. And we could dedicate a lot of time from that point on discussing its significance in the Roman landscape and the political expression of power that was made by future emperors that used this space for rituals or restoring and dedicating the temple for the sake of their own glory. But it isn't a podcast on Roman architecture. We're not raiding significant buildings. 
We're not, but at some point we are going to do a Patreon series about papal spaces and places. And so we can, at that point, do a whole episode on the Pantheon. But for now, we just need to acknowledge that the Pantheon for the Romans is older and grander than most places could ever be in any living memory at this time. But since the conversion of the Empire to Christianity, this incredible building had been standing as a testament to the old world and the old religion, and let's not forget, an old religion that had persecuted Christianity quite harshly. So now Boniface was able to completely shift its meaning and use essentially what everyone in Rome would have accepted was an eternal building to glorify God. And this is exactly what happened. So on May 13th of 609, the Pantheon was consecrated to the Virgin Mary and all the martyrs by the Pope himself. Now it would be called the Santa Maria Rotunda instead of the Pantheon. One of those names isn't going to stick. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. We have a quote from John the Deacon here. It says, Another Pope, Boniface, asked the same Emperor Focus in Constantinople to order in that the old temple called the Pantheon, after the pagan filth was removed, a church should be made to the Holy Virgin Mary and all the martyrs so that the commemoration of the saints would take place henceforth where not gods but demons were formerly worshipped. Oh man, John the Deacon's got some feelings. He has some feelings. <laughs> and Bede recounts it very similarly in his ecclesiastical history. He says, He obtained for the Church of Christ from the Emperor Focus the gift of the temple at Rome called by the ancients Pantheon as representing all the gods, wherein he, having purified it from all defilement, dedicated a church to the Holy Mother of God and all the saints martyrs, and all Christ martyrs to the end that, the company of devils being expelled, the blessed company of the saints might there have in a perpetual memorial. See, his language is, was slightly gentler. It still talks about defilement and devils. like <laughs> Defilement and devils, but not filth and... Yeah, it's a little bit more flowery because it's bead, so... Now, in order to cement the new purpose of the Pantheon and make it a site of Christian reverence, Boniface had all of the sacred bones removed from the catacombs of Rome, which turns out to be about 28 cartloads of saints' bones, according to some sources. What? That's a lot of carts. That's a lot of cartloads. So he basically empties all of the catacombs around Rome of all of the saints, and he brings their bones to be brought and interred in a porphyry basin. Imagine you're living in medieval Rome, and your job is to be one of those tour guides, like in Boston, where like you sort of get people to follow you around and you ask for tips. Mm. It's like a saint's tour, and the Pope has <laughs> upended all of the saints' bodies and shoved them into one location. She sure has. And for the record, if you go to the catacombs today, they still have said tour guides. And they talk way too long before letting you in. Remember, the last time I was in Rome was when those 30,000 altar servers were there? Mm-hmm. And we got to the catacombs of Calixtus early, and we were gonna get in before this group, 
And our tour guide just kept talking and talking and talking to the point where my husband and I went, dude, they're going in and we're going to beat them. Goodbye. So they talk forever. But like, imagine you have this tour all ready and set out and then you can't go on it anymore. And you can never do it again because now you just have to go to the former Pantheon and go, there they all are. Here's all the bones. No longer is it a song and dance. I mean, they can point to where they were. I mean, they'll still take you in and be like, this is the room where all the popes were, and this is where St. Cecilia was. But it's not as impressive when it's just a hole in the wall. So he brings him in. He puts the, all of the saint's bones into this porphyry basin. He installs an image of Mary on the high altar. And from this moment on, up to the current day, the Pantheon has been, and still is, an active Catholic church. And its conversion to a Catholic church is without a doubt the reason why the Pantheon's been preserved in such an amazing condition. Because it truly is absolutely stunning, and if it had just remained a pagan temple, it would have at some point been destroyed. I did not know it was a church. It is, and they actually have, because the the way that the Pantheon is constructed, the big selling feature, if you will, is the dome. It's an oculus. So the top is open to the open sky, and then it domes out from there. So it's full-on open air. If it's raining, it's coming through. But at the Pentecost, they do this wonderful ceremony where they dump rose petals in from the top. At the ceiling? Yeah, and it, they just all float down in from the sky, and it's it's really really beautiful. It is really cool to see. I'm going to send you just a quick image from a Google so that you kind of have an idea of what that looks like when... Oh, that's pretty. I'm trying to think what the current equivalent for... Here's a pagan place, but you walk inside. Like, the outside is still the thing you thought it was, and then you walk inside and it's a Catholic church. What is our current equivalent for that? <laughs> Well, I think you'd have to do, like, you know when we were in Boston, you have these beautiful old, like, New England-style buildings with all the beautiful architecture, and they were clearly, like, homes and residences, and now there's, like, a CVS inside? Ah, uh, yes. Like that one we went into, <laughs> where they ID'd me for simple cough medicine. I think you were trying to get the cough medicine with them hard drugs. <laughs> But that building was definitely, like, at one point, a library or something of that. It is now a frickin' CVS. So I think that's our equivalent. <laughs> Moving on from that, the Pantheon. This is a big one. It's pretty cool. And you can still go there today, and it is one of the sites in Rome that is free entry. You just walk in and you can see everything. Some of the kings of the Italian reunification are buried there. It is it is very cool. We will go. When you're making me go at Christmas or whatever you said. December 5. We're going to go in off season, okay? It's going to happen. So, also during Boniface's papacy, the first established bishop of London, because remember, Gregory had the English evangelization efforts, a man called Miletus comes to Rome. And according to Bede in his Ecclesiastical History of England, Miletus came to confer with the apostolic Pope Boniface about the necessary affairs of the English Church. 
and the same most reverend pope ascending a synod of the bishops of italy to prescribe rules for the life and peace of the monks Miletus also sat among them to the end that he might also sign and confirm by his authority whatsoever should be clearly and regularly decreed and on his return into britain might carry the decrees to the churches of the english to be committed to them and observed together with letters with such the same pope sent to the beloved of god archbishop laurentius and to all his clergy and likewise to king ethelbert and the english nation so the first bishop of london comes he gets to sit in on a synod to understand exactly what should be happening to for the church and then he gets to carry letters back while the pope tries to make overtures to the kings of britain pretty cool unfortunately there are no historically verifiable records of the synod mentioned in bede's account or of the letters that boniface supposedly wrote to the archbishop or to king ethelbert but we do know that through Miletus, Pope Boniface was having direct contact with the newly developing church in England and assisting and establishing structure and guidelines that they would need. So, this is pretty good secular impact. But this would not be the only contact that Boniface would have with the UK, because he would also be in contact with the Irish missionary and later saint, St. Columbanus. And for any of our UK listeners out there, this is not the famous St. Columba, the Apostle of the Picts. This is Columbanus, who was Irish and was also part of the Hiberno-Scottish missions, but is better known for having founded monasteries in Francia and the Lombard kingdoms. Just a distinction, because if you Google Columbanus, you're going to get St. Columba first. So Columbanus wrote to Pope Boniface twice during his lifetime. The first was while he was living in the Frankish kingdoms in Gaul, where he had come into conflict with the local bishops over something that we haven't seen in quite a while, and something you just mentioned a couple minutes ago. Oh, yeah. You want to guess? Mm-mm. Easter. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Apparently, Irish bishops have always maintained computing Easter through a quarter deciman oriented calculation. Oh, sh- the Franks had gone on board with the calculations based on the Sunday, 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 forever Sunday, always Sunday approach. And we're not going to get into the whole of it, but Columbanus wasn't arguing over which day Easter fell on. Like, they were still celebrating on a Sunday, but they were using a yearly cycle that had been developed by the Quartadecimans, so it didn't line up with the way that the Franks did. They'd end up coming up to different calculations about which Sunday in the Paschal season was actually Easter. So Columbanus wrote to Pope Boniface after having previously written to Pope Gregory and never getting a response, asking him to confirm the calculations that he was using. But he either didn't get a response from Boniface on this, or he had already moved out of Gaul when the response came and he never got it, so... Either way, there's no record. And then Columbanus moved on and was in Italy and didn't run into any more Easter conflicts. But guess what? We're so not done with that. It will come back again and again. Never done with Easter. We are definitely never done with Easter. When Columbanus wrote to Pope Boniface the second time, somewhere around the year 613, 
He was still in Italy at the Lombard Court in Milan, where he had been a guest of Queen Theodolinda and King Agilulf, who we talked about had converted in Gregory's episode. And King Agilulf had spoken to Columbanus and persuaded him that he should write to the Pope on the matter of another very contentious issue that we've covered and thought we were done with the three chapters. Oh my god. I thought that was really done. Yeah, nothing is ever really done. Get it together, Catholic Church. I just finished researching another council where they had to pass ten canons just to confirm what all the other councils had said. No. It's never done. So, Agilulf had supported the defense of the three chapters and was in the part of the region of Italy that remained in schism, not wanting to accept the condemnation of them. He wants Columbanus to write to the Pope and reproach him for accepting heresy, which they felt that the Second Council of Constantinople was, and to call on him to hold another council to prove orthodoxy. And so Columbanus wrote the letter, and for this, Agilulf would give him land in a region called Bobbio, where he would found an <laughs> abbey. Yes, it's called Bobbio. He's often called Columbanus of Bobbio. B-O-B-B-I-O. Doesn't make it better. So, back to this letter to the Pope. This letter is both supremely apologetic, but also very cutting and definitely calls the Pope a heretic, which is so fitting for something we're going to talk about in a little bit. And it is a very dramatic document, so I'm going to read you just a few passages that are hilariously written, okay? So, first, his introduction referring to himself. Who could listen to a greenhorn? Who would not say at once, who is this bumptious babbler that dares to write such things unbidden? What apostle of scrupulous justice would not immediately break out into that old abusive speech, the retort to Moses of the Hebrew that was doing wrong to his brother? Who made thee a lord or judge over us? God, this man writes like a Reddit post. Oh yeah, I've got a couple more. I hate it already, I hate it. Indeed, I grieve, I confess, for the disgrace of St. Peter's chair. Yet I know that the affair is beyond me and that at the first blush I am, as the saying goes, thrusting my face into the fire. But what care I for saving face before mankind, when zeal for the faith must needs be shown? I'm so embarrassed of the job you're doing, Poe, that I have to put myself at risk to say it. I'm embarrassed for him. For I shall speak as a friend, disciple, and close follower of yours, not as a stranger, therefore I shall speak out freely, saying to those that are our masters and helmsmen of the spiritual ship and mystic sentinels, Watch, for the sea is stormy and whipped up by fatal blasts, for it is not a solitary threatening wave such as, even across a silent ocean, is raised to overweening heights from the ever-foaming eddies of a hollow rock, though it swells from afar and drives the sails before it while death walks the waves, but it is a tempest of the entire element surging indeed and swollen upon every side that threatens shipwreck of the mystic vessel. Thus do I, a fearful sailor, dare to cry, Watch, for water has now entered the vessel of the church, and the vessel is in perilous straits. Gasp. 
Watch, therefore, I beg you, Pope, watch, and again I say watch. Oh god, he's still speaking. Since Vigilius was not very vigilant. Vigilant? <laughs> whom our friends who laid lame on you describe as the main stumbling block. Watch first for the faith, then for the bidding of works of faith for spurning vices, since your watchfulness will be the salvation of many, just as on the other side your carelessness will be the destruction of many. You see the terror by which the Lord awakens our sleeps in deadly sloth to watchfulness, lest we be found unready. Therefore I say, watch, dear Pope, it is time to arise from sleep. The Lord approaches. And it does go on and on. I'm going to read you one more talking about the king. I am next asked by the king to mention to your godly ears item by item the matter of his grief. For the division of his people is so grief to him for the sake of the queen of their son, and perhaps his own sake also, he is said to have remarked that if he knew for certain, he would also believe. And it just goes on and on and on. There's a lot of these, like, I call upon you. He calls upon the Pope to remove this wart from the good face of Christianity and save your good name ripped apart by the Gentiles. So it is document. And the best part? It doesn't seem like Boniface ever even answered his letter. Because he died? No. He just went, this is trash. No response ever came, so all of this hysterics amounted to nothing. Which I think is amazing. But then, in Boniface's older age, he decided... To die? No. <laughs> no, he decided... It was time to retire. Oh, what? That's not allowed. Is this our second pope to formally give up the papacy? Well, sort of. Not really. Boniface just decided to follow in his old mentor, Gregory's footsteps, one last time, and had his personal home converted to a monastery. And then he chose to retire there and live as a monk instead of in the Lateran Palace as the Pope. But in doing so, he doesn't really give up the papacy. He just decides that he needs to split his time. So he goes to being a part-time Pope. Okay. Half of the time, he would conduct his papal responsibilities, and the other half of the time, he lived in contemplation. So while he does sort of retire, he's not officially credited as a Pope who abdicated. He's the Pope who decides to retire and then come back and work casual. And Boniface died in his retirement on May 8th of 615. He was initially buried in the portico of Old St. Peter's, but unlike so many Popes, this isn't going to be a buried in Old St. Peter's, tomb destroyed kind of story. Boniface moves around quite a lot after his death. Again, for this section, we're going to rely in large part on Wendy J. Reardon's book, Deaths of the Popes. Thank God someone got that for us. Uh, thanks, Richard. Heckin' Richard. Heckin' Richard. Thumbs are up. So, first Boniface's remains were removed from the portico outside to the inside of the basilica to an altar by Pope Nicholas III. And this is where we get the first version of his epitaph, which reads, Here lies kind Boniface IV, who was the fair guide of this sea and building, he purged the temple and dedicated it all to the saints. The fourth light honors his feast day, which you celebrate September 1st. So the temple he mentions here is obviously the Pantheon. Then in the late 1300s, 
Pope Boniface VIII had the altar where Boniface IV was buried restored, but translated the relics from that altar to his own funeral chapel under his future sarcophagus. And for Boniface VIII, this is clearly a political expression. He was in a unique position of being a pope whose predecessor was still alive, Pope Celestine V. He'd abdicated. Such a good story. Coming in time, so... And as a result, Boniface VIII was worried about the challenges to his legitimacy, which is understandable, especially after he had imprisoned Celestine to try and prevent anyone from trying to reinstall him as an antipope. So Boniface VIII decides that he needs to associate himself very closely with Boniface IV, who's still very well regarded in the church, as a way to enhance his own legitimacy. And so by putting the bones of the Pope in his own tomb, he's able to symbolically indicate that he had the support and the blessing of one of his apostolic ancestors. Interestingly, we have a little tidbit here that we don't normally get, because Boniface VIII is also the Pope who canonizes Boniface IV, and the cult around Boniface IV as a saint can all be tied back to this enhancement and prestige on Boniface VIII's part. He also adds two lines to Boniface IV's epitaph, which says, Boniface VIII of that title, having erected this altar with the name of Boniface, sets here his bones that were found. So he clearly wants to tie that up very nicely for himself. And it's definitely due to these efforts of Boniface VIII that Boniface IV doesn't get lost or destroyed in the renovation to New St. Peter's, because then his remains get transferred into the new St. Peter's on October 21st of 1603 with the altar of Boniface VIII. And here we get another inscription which says, The body of the holy Pope Boniface IV was taken from the altar in the Vatican Basilica between the Portal of Judgment and the Portal of Ravenna, moved to the altar by Pope Boniface VIII who was adorned, dedicated, and gifted with this name, was by command of the Supreme Pontiff Paul V, transferred with honors to beneath this altar. And then added to this, there's one more inscription. Although historians seem fairly unclear when it was added or who added it. So Wendy Reardon cites historian Giacomo Grimaldi, who calls this final inscription, quote, badly carved in ancient minuscule. It's definitely set apart from the others. And this one reads, Man's life is short, a fixed hour determines it. But the journey to eternal life is thereupon prepared, which appears not as something unbecoming nor perishable, but beautiful and comely. It lasts without end. Thus, O death, whatever you trouble with harmful stings, whatever you roar in vain, whatever madness you bring, your deeds can render you no reward. Your impulse of yours benefits you. This is the man whoever follows in laboring life and worthy morals in the instructions and examples of his master Gregory, to the end that you deem him frightening. He wishes to dispatch his soul to the stars, to return his body to earth, wounded indeed in pain. His many body parts remain collected together and turn into ancient dust. Conjoined to his soul, let them rise to eternal life in a body made firm, rather than in you that perish. The Holy Faith deservedly commanded her servants to keep this sure hope of life in the mercy of the Father. 
hey, but guess what? We're not done because parts of his body were then taken as relics. Ooh, we got back to relic taking. We haven't had that for a little bit. We have not had that for quite a while. Even Gregory didn't get all divvied up. He didn't get divvied up at the amount of times that he moved is insane. I had to cut so many out because I'd be like, and then he went here, and then he went here, and there was a whole thing about him getting a new cedar coffin, and then he went here, and then, oh, he moved so much because they were just like, Gregory, you know. <laughs> but they didn't divvy up his part. They did not. They kept him in total. With Boniface, one of his arms was taken to be interred with relics of other papal saints in another Roman church, which is the altar of St. Mary in Cosmedine. I couldn't find sourcing as to whether they're still there, but the church is, so it seems so. And then in 1264, other unspecified body parts were taken to the chapel of St. Sylvester in the Quarto Coronati, which is also in Rome. Did you say unspecified body parts? Unspecified body so, parts. So, like, who knows, like, his gonads and his spleen and his left eyeball. I mean, this is 1264, the man lived 600 years ago, all that is left is bones. Oh, that's fair. Unless they jerkied some of it, salted it, and preserved it properly, I don't know. So he has, um, jerky gonads? Yeah. Jerky gonads it is. That is what St. Sylvester in the Quarto Coronati have, so. <laughs> Maybe you should specify your body parts next time, bro. Well, when we go there, we can just be like, can we see the jerky gonads, please? I'll make you ask. So, there's a little bit of Boniface all over. Ew. Which little bit of him is, is up for debate. But that's Boniface. And now, it's time to rate him. Papatum and Phallium. Okay, so, we have the cult of St. Boniface IV, created by Boniface VIII which makes him quite a revered saint with a long-lasting impact. We have the Pantheon, which this was the moment it was converted. It's one of the major reasons that it's still so well-preserved throughout all of future recorded history. And he's an extension of Gregory, so he's promoting monastic life and discipline. He connects with the bishops of England and... We'll connect with the bishops, I guess, in Seculare and Pactum, but he does okay. I was leaning around eight. Oh, you're going to give him quite a lot. I'm I'm not going to give him higher than a three then, because I think my initial thought was like, I'll give him a three just for the Pantheon, maybe like a four. I am pleased that he has a cult. Yeah, me too. It's pretty cool that he has a cult. So if you're going to give him an 8, I will give him a 3 and he'll get an 11, which is still a pretty handy-dandy score. <laughs> what the f***? I blew his clues in at me. Oh, you know, it's it's like middling of the road and a little bit above. Fructus prohibitum. Don't really have anything here. Unless you want to include him ignoring that letter. Male is unreliable at the best of times. It's true. But it would also be hilarious if he got that dramatic hysterical letter and just went... Nah. <laughs> I feel like I'd give him a bonus point for that. Seculari impactum. So the Church of England is expanding, and he's playing a direct role in connecting with the bishops to ensure the spreading Christianization of the peoples of England. That's pretty good. And even though we've scored him for the Pantheon, 
it should be in this category as well for the preserved history. So it should be something. Oh, God. I don't know. Maybe, maybe like a five. I was saying like four. So we'll give him a nine. It's pretty solid. Fossium Sanctus. All right. I got a man to show you. Oh, I'm so ready. He's a golden man. Oh, he is so shiny. Dishevely? It's not dishevely in the same way that he was last week. It's just kind of amusedly dishevely. Like, I just woke up or I just did some surfing and I got some waves in my hair. What is it that I want to describe about his face? The way that it is directly flat, much like a pug's. Maybe that's it, because, like, what I want to say... And I don't know how to say this, because obviously this is a painted image. It is not a photograph. But what I'm trying to say here is, it doesn't look real. <laughs> he lives in an uncanny valley sort of section. Yes, that's what I'm trying to convey. There's something uncanny valley about it. He doesn't look like a realistic representation of a human. <laughs> not to say that many of our popes have, but this definitely falls into, like, perhaps he had a botched plastic surgery. Yeah, I mean, it, it's never something that's jumped out and struck me like this before, so something's happening. What do you think Uncanny Valley is worth? Two. A two? I mean, it's not super bad. It's got something to do with his nose. I think someone shaved his nose wrong. Yeah, alright, so I'm, I'm gonna match your two, which gives him a four. When put through our calculator, gives him a one, because our calculator is literally just dividing by four. Someone tried to make it better, though. So there's this. Oh, okay. Uh, that's... Also super uncanny. That's a Bethesda face. It's not any better. Okay, I have two more images for you to look at here. And they are very similar, but give this man an entirely different face. They're very... Turtle face man. Yeah, that is... Uh, I agree. Turtle face man. Colin Mockery, but turtle face man. No, no, no. This is a turtle face. Especially the smaller one. It's very, it's turtly, very turtly. What is that old, what was that stupid movie that everybody used to say all the time? Oh, with the turtle turtles. Yeah, um, I don't know, it's got Garth in it, whatever his name, Dana Carvey. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, Turtle Club something. Master of Disguise, maybe? Something Disguise. A terrible movie. That's what we can be sure of. It is definitely Master of Disguise. I don't know how you pulled that out of the depths of my brain. People used to say it all the time. God damn, now we're showing our age here. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. He gets a one, and the turtles, I mean, it's a cute turtle face, but he's not scoring anymore for it. Tempus Pontificus. September 15th, 608, to May 8th of 615, Seven years, a score of 1.75. Not bad. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. Feast day is May 8th. He was canonized, of course, by Pope Boniface VIII. Not a surprise. And not a patron saint. So for the first time in a very long time, we can actually... Pick a patron sainthood. Wow. Okay. Holy cow. All right. Jerkified gonads? <laughs> no, that's rude. Where nobody does that. <laughs> I hope not. 
It's not like people are going to invoke him. Let's go with... I don't know, it's got to be Uncanny Valley. Okay. He can be the patron saint of Uncanny Valley. Are you invoking against Uncanny Valley or for Uncanny Valley? Good question. I feel like maybe it should be against Uncanny Valley. Against Uncanny Valley seems fair. So that brings us to his total score, which is a 23.75, putting him only like 0.2 behind Pope Boniface III. So that's pretty good. I'm impressed. Yeah. That's awesome. So that leads me to my final question of whether he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough and impactful enough for a papal bull? No. I mean, if Boniface III wasn't going to get it, he's not going to get it. But he did a great job. He brought us the Pantheon and made sure it was still here for us to visit in 2019, 2020, and beyond. So that is pretty awesome. And I like it. But we are not done. Because it's time for... Oh boy, what is it? You told me it was wild. The internet is a strange place, my friend. Three hermits living in Orkney have been excommunicated from the Catholic Church after calling Pope Francis a heretic. Oh. Are you ready for this? I don't know if I am. Well, let's just say I wasn't. These three, who are referred to in the news as either the Orkney Trio or the Westray Hermits or even the Black Hermits, are Father Stephen de Curdell, a priest, or rather a former priest, Damon Kelly, a monk, and a laywoman called Colette Farrell Roberts. And they recently published an online declaration of their withdrawal of obedience from the Pope and severed themselves from Holy Communion with the Apostolic See. The hermits had been warned in their local diocese, which is Arl, that this sort of action would be grounds for excommunication, and they did it anyways. Their online declaration, because they did post this on their website, outlines their current issues with the evil of the church and how the bark of Peter is a rudderless sinking ship, blah, blah, blah. Basically, they're mad that the church is tolerating homosexuality on some level, and that makes them depraved. Oh, they would. Now, this is not the first time that these three have been in conflict with the church. In 2015, they were removed from clerical housing for what is called bringing the diocese into disrepute. And this is because they were getting arrested under the Public Order Act for distributing material that was of an abusive and homophobic nature and for harassment. In 2016, the group was convicted of a target homophobic harassment of a clergyman And Brother Damon, according to an article on the tablet, has been arrested ten times for similar offenses. So these are basically the Hermit Westboro Baptists. To be clear, this is an automatic excommunication that has been passed on them for declaring their withdrawal. It's not like Pope Francis came out and had to draw up a document of anathema against them. It basically was processed by the Bishop for the Diocese of Arles and then approved by the Vatican. 
And I'm going to quote directly from an article on BBC.com. A spokesman for the Diocese of Arles in the Isles said, In April, the group wrote to Bishop McKee to say that they intended to withdraw their obedience from Pope Francis and sever communion with the Holy See. The bishop advised them that their actions would incur automatic excommunication and urged them to reconsider, and made several offers of dialogue, all of which were refused. As a result, the penalty of excommunication now applies. Now, apparently, the hermits received the official confirmation of their excommunication on December 24th, and then wrote another statement, and then they call Pope Francis heartless for sending it so near Christmas, and then they, like, say a bunch of other wild things and declare that the excommunication is worthless and void, and strange ride, and I'm not going to give these people any airtime by quoting them, but let's just say, in trying to figure out who these men were, or rather, who these hermits were, I definitely went down a rabbit hole into the strange world of anti-Francis garbage that's on the internet. A hole. Can you just imagine that you just need to feel like the church is evil because it doesn't believe that some people are abominations? So yeah, they've now been officially excommunicated. So there you go. That's what happens when you call the Pope a heretic? Mm, just a thought. Now on with our thank yous. We have a patron to absolve of his temporal punishments. So we need to thank Joe Miesbauer. Ego te absolvo. I also want to thank uh, Cooking with Grief and the Why Is That Pod and everyone else who commented on our punny name when Podchaser asked for the most clever podcast title that you've ever heard of. Yeah, we got a lot of people. We got so much love that day. So thank you guys. We're so glad you enjoy it. And I also want to thank Catherine Fletcher for sending me her book. The Beauty and the Terror, An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance. I am so excited about this book, and I'm enjoying it so much, but it is going to be such a slow read for me, because I'm like two chapters in, and I have so many tabs and notes that I've already made about all of the great information that she has. So it's going to take me forever, and I'm loving every moment. So thank you so much for considering us and for sending me your book. I love it. I love it. I love it. And with that, we can end this episode and say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.